yes, we have genetic traits. We are born with them. How we use those traits, do we take our perfectionism and count fat grams and calories? Or do we take that and try to create a good company, try to do a good presentation? Where do we utilize those traits? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Equipped to Recover, where we explore the intersection of recovery stories and eating disorder science to show you that recovery is not only possible, it is very worth it. I'm Christina Safran, co-founder and CEO of Equip, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by therapist, author, speaker, and one of my personal mentors and role models, Carolyn Costin. She is regarded as one of the most influential and impactful figures in the eating disorder field. She first started treating people with eating disorders in 19. 79 and in 1996 oh she founded Montanito, the first ever residential treatment center that utilized a revolutionary and effective approach. She was one of the first people to confidently proclaim that full recovery is possible. Kind of crazy to think that now, but that was a, a pretty controversial uh, and not often said thing back then. Um, and to advocate for the inclusion of recovered people in treatment. And in 2017, she went on to create the Carolyn Costin Institute, which focuses on coaching and mentor training to help individuals further in recovery. Carolyn has authored and co-authored many books, including The Eight Keys of Recovery from an Eating Disorder, which to many is the Bible of Eating Disorder Recovery. She's a sought-after eating disorder professional thanks to her decades of experience in providing effective treatment and training. And I'm so excited for you all to listen in as Carolyn, a trailblazer in eating disorder treatment, and I discuss ways to strengthen, deepen, and navigate your recovery from an eating disorder. Welcome, Carolyn. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking with you anyway, so it doesn't matter if it's uh, on a podcast or sitting at a conference hiding out somewhere. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, let's start, you know, kind of at the beginning. Just remind folks about what your experience was coming to the realization that you had an eating disorder and your own journey to recovery. Wow. It's so interesting because, you know, I mean, back in the olden days, <laughs> I had an eating disorder when I was about, it's hard to say exactly when it starts, right? But somewhere around 14, 15 years old. And there weren't any books, you know, there were, there just, there wasn't the articles and the different, you know, there was no such thing as a eating disorder dietitian. Anyway, it, it was, I just kept losing weight. And what I think is really interesting about the story is that it still holds true today. I think people, I developed anorexia nervosa, and I think what happens is people who have that illness, they often get to the point where they don't want to lose any more weight, but they're so afraid of gaining weight and gaining too much weight that they are still holding back and restricting and they continue to lose. And then the bar gets set lower. So that happened. And, um, you know, my mom obviously recognized something was wrong, but she took me to a doctor who basically said, well, you know, your labs are okay now, but you know, if you keep going this way and you don't have your period, you might not be able to have kids someday. And I'm like 15, like, what do I care? Right. You know, <laughs> what, what, what I think is interesting about that is that getting better without 
having formal treatment. And, and I think that informed me a lot in some of the ways that I work today. You know, the ways I challenge people in terms of you have a healthy self in there, but you have an eating disorder self and it's up to you to start battling that. That's what I did to get better. I recognized that I had these two parts of me and I started talking, having them talk to each other. And that's part of what I do today, you know? Tell me more about that process because recovering on your own, it's absolutely possible, but it's really, really hard. I mean, recovering with the best treatment in the world is really, really hard. So how long did it take? What obstacles did you face? How did you overcome them? Were there periods where you thought you were recovered and, and then it wasn't super linear? What did that look like? Well, um, yeah, and this is good to talk about too, because I, I it, it has informed my practice. And, you know, I mean, if I do say so myself, I've had a very successful run at treating people. And I think part of it comes from some of these things that I did. And there are so many. One of them was the body image stuff. I recognized at some point early on, you cannot be the judge of your own body. Because what I would see when I looked in the mirror, you know, I would still see, oh, my stomach's sticking out or my legs are too fat or I'm not. And everyone around me was saying, you're too thin, you're too thin. And I had this weird realization. How is it that I could be seeing something completely different from what they're seeing? And even though I didn't see what they're seeing, I told myself, something must be wrong if you're the only one who sees it that way. So I started protecting myself by not looking in mirrors, you know, by trying to wear clothes that were loose fitting clothes. I, I was obsessed with weighing myself and I realized I have to stop weighing myself because it's never good. Eat when it's low, then I want to keep it low. And if I've gained, then I freak out and restrict my food and lose weight again. So interestingly enough, I had moved on to college by now. <clears throat> I was young when I went, I was 16 when I went off to college. And I was studying psychology and I used myself as a behavior, you know, I, I was reading about, I was reading old Skinner stuff about behavior therapy, and I decided to use myself. <laughs> All research is me search. And, uh, and I would give myself tasks like you, like I loved ice cream. I loved it so much. And I would give myself, you have to eat a certain amount of grams of protein a day, or you can't have your ice cream, you know, like that. But I have to say, before I had some realizations like the eating disorder, self-healthy self one, I, was, I, I tell this story a lot. I was on my way to a Christmas party, and I remember telling myself, and you're going to recognize this, um, now you're not going to eat one thing when you walk in that door. You're not going to eat one thing. Another part of me said, that's easy for you. You, you know how to do that. You're, you can walk in that party and not eat anything. What would be really hard for you is to walk in and just have a couple of things, like a cookie and a piece of, you know, at Christmas time, there's all kinds of candy. But I realized that that was my healthy self. That was the part of us that knows how to talk to other people that would never feed anybody else like we feed ourselves, even when we're really sick with an eating disorder. And that, that was a big turning point. And, and to this day, I think that's what helps people get well, is to realize that 
there's a part of you in there. We just need to strengthen that. We need to grow that part back up and it's going to take over the part of you that's now running the show with an eating disorder. And the way I talk about it, as you know, is you will integrate those two parts and you'll be one whole person again. So I don't even really talk about getting rid of the eating disorder self as much as I talk about you get rid of the behaviors, but that part of self that's there is the part that comes to protect you and that is very sensitive. I think we're very sensitive creatures with big radar. Mm -hmm. And it's the part of us that warns us if we need to pay attention to something. So I don't think we get rid of it as much as we get rid of the behaviors because once your healthy self is taken care of, you don't need the behaviors anymore. Probably sounds simplistic, right? No, I couldn't agree more. And I think you are one of the first people to talk about integrating those selves and, and thinking about how I say often, you know, my success in life is anorexia gone good. It's taking these temperament traits that are sort of exactly. an and channeling them in the right direction. And you were one of the first ones to write about that. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about how you came to that realization and how you see your own temperament traits sort of channeled in the right direction. Yeah, well, um, and this was later on. I had already, I became a high school teacher for a while. And then I think you know the story. I, I, the principal I was working for said, hey, there's a girl in this town that has that thing you had. And I was like, I don't know. I was a teacher and I was a counselor and I had a private, a small private practice. I thought I would treat adolescent clients. But what happened was once I got referred this client who had anorexia, I felt like it was a mind meld. You know, I just knew what she was thinking. And I asked her questions people hadn't asked her and she got better. And so I started treating people and, and I realized there are all these qualities that the eating disorder, um, that, that, that part, we can channel them in different ways. So like I had always been, since I was a kid, I had always been kind of anxious and a bit controlling, you know, bossing all the other kids the around <laughs> in the neighborhood and, and stuff like that, you know, and uh, very perfectionistic about, I was the kid with a flashlight on the school bus, reading my homework, having to get straight A's. And I realized when I started dieting, I just applied all those traits to dieting. You know, I would count my calories meticulously. I wouldn't allow myself to skip or cheat one thing. It was so much like how I was with school and everything else that I realized it's where I'm putting these traits that is going to make or break me. It's not the traits themselves. And when some people talk to me early on about getting rid of this thing that I had, I thought to myself, what? Mm, that feels like you're getting rid of me. I didn't want to get rid of it. I kind of wanted to change it or transform it or tame it or something. So that also led into this philosophy of mine that I've written about a lot now, but it also helped me solidify that we need to help people take their traits and, and use them for the good. So fast forward, I'm in a conference and eating disorder clinicians are, and you know, I've told you this before, I've cried on your shoulder about this before, being a female recovered and being in those early days of AED and, you know, oh God, and listening to them talk about people with eating disorders and 
And there was this research about the temperament of people with anorexia and people with bulimia. It's not just anorexia. Binge eating, I think, is not so clear about the temperament, although we know more now. But they up on the screen, anorexia nervosa was perfectionistic, compulsive, obsessive, risk-averse. Uh, so negative. And that's what I said. I'm sitting there thinking, that, 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 okay, I know that there's something to this, but why are they all pejorative? Like, I like to think of myself as detailed-oriented and tenacious and high energy, not perfectionistic, obsessive, and, and, and filled with anxiety, you know? And I looked at that list and I thought, I, I started right away writing about, and the same thing with people with bulimia who are tend to be more impulsive. People with anorexia tend to be more controlling. And even that, you know, th- that, that changes. It's not exactly stereotyping because we have found some of these traits as risk factors. They don't cause an eating disorder, but they're risk factors. So looking at something like someone with bulimia, for example, and maybe they have a, a harder time with impulse control, but they're also the people who are much more spontaneous and much more risk takers than, than someone like me. I was always, you know, like, try to follow the rules. I remember my boyfriend in high school told me one day he wasn't turning in his homework. And I was like, really? Do we have an option? <laughs> I didn't even consider it, you know? So I think... What I learned by looking at that, and I've been writing about it and talking about it ever since, is that, yes, we have genetic traits. We are born with them. How we use those traits, do we take our perfectionism and count fat grams and calories, or do we take that and try to do things that you and I have done with our life, you know, try to create a good company, try to do a good presentation? Where do we utilize those traits? And so... You know, when I sometimes when I think of the whole eradicating thing, I think to myself, "Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I have these traits, but I also am glad that I learned how to channel them in the in the way that is for my highest good." You know? I think it's so hopeful for people because they're really able to see themselves in that and say, "Like, okay, this doesn't mean that I have to have anorexia or bulimia forever. Like, I can actually use these and use them to my advantage." Which just the the hope is is so pronounced. I think this will be one of the you know most interesting parts of the conversation because you are one of the first people to say recovered period is absolutely possible period, and you know for so long in my early journey people told me you don't recover from this you're always going to be sick with this and it felt so hopeless and demotivating I was like the, why would I do all this hard work if it's not even possible yeah. and so when I reached that you know first pinnacle of recovery um, I just wanted to shout it from the rooftops like full recovery is possible period. Absolutely. Um, and it became a big part of, you know, my story and the Project Heal story. As Project Heal grew and we amassed more diverse followers, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of patients and families started to hear a little bit of pushback in, you know, I prefer the language of in a strong and active recovery. And I, I think what we honestly heard was when we dug into what folks were talking about, they kind of were talking about the same thing around your definition of you know, for, for, for what I described food and body, like don't play a very central role in my life. Like my life is just so much bigger and greater than that. 
But I think some people said, look, especially for folks who you and I have thin privilege, we were covered into bodies that are more societally acceptable. Like I have a lot of friends in fat bodies, self-proclaimed, who say until the world like changes the way that they view fat people, recovery is a daily active act for me. I need to be thoughtful about it because I am hearing constantly from peers, society, doctors, that my body is not okay as it is. Um, And I think understanding too about the strong sort of genetic, neurobiological, metabolic factors of the eating disorder around for folks with a genetic predisposition, like getting into negative caloric deficit, whether that comes from dieting, which hopefully many of us know never ever to do again, or like a flu or like getting divorced, having a huge trauma in your life can start to set off this genetic cascade. Um, And certainly like growing up in the public field as a recovered role model from 15 to 30, like I've had periods where I've gone into negative caloric deficit. And thank God I've had folks around me who have known about my history and been able to say like, hey, like, (laughs) let's, uh, you know, not exercise as much in college. I had that too. Like I had a parasite once and I lost, oh, I don't know, something like close to 20 pounds. And but never once did I have the feeling like I want this or I want to keep it going or I didn't feel trapped into it. So I have a question about that. I think that it can happen. We know there's some genetic predisposition, but I actually think that people can get to the point where that I don't think genes, I don't believe genes are what's the word? I don't think it's, uh, I don't believe in the determinism of that. I do think that there's a, it's a, it's a genes and environment combination. Mm -hmm. So I don't think necessarily that because we have, and this is why I think people get confused. I think I'm always going to have my genes. I'm always going to have that genetic predisposition. And I think that's what makes people think you have to sort of be on guard But I actually think you can get to a place of being recovered where it doesn't even matter if that happens again, because I do believe that eating disorders, for how much biological components we know, I still think there's a part of it where the person, at least initially, is a willing participant, you know? It's not like having cancer. Yeah. It's it's not like the kind of illness that you, you can't stop it, you know? So I feel differently about it. And I think we haven't sorted it out quite yet. Yeah. No, I I think that's right. And to answer your question, like, I, I think back to when I went to college and exercise was never part of my eating disorder in that, you know, I was so young and it just, it just wasn't. And then in my recovery early on, it became this really powerful, empowering. I remember like lifting weights and feeling strong and um, this is after many years of not wanting to do anything because I was so associated with, you know, frankly, I was like, I don't want to lift weights because weights, you know, muscle weighs more than fat and I don't want to gain more weight. Like there were so many years that I stayed away from it. So when I finally got into a good place, it was really, really healthy. And I think my personality by nature is compulsive. It's a blessing and a curse um, where like I like something and I start liking it a lot. And at, you know, elite college campuses, excessive exercise is like super friggin' normalized. And so it did get to a place where it was, you know, it was what everyone was doing. But looking back, I'm like, oh, that was definitely excessive exercise. And and so it was 
almost something that became habitual. And I think when I had people pointed out to me, it was easy enough. And I think that's where the difference was to say, oh, actually, like, yeah, you're probably right. And maybe I should. Like, there I go again. Yeah, but sort of like, oh, like, yeah, this is <laughs> this is a part of my personality. And it, you know, it happens in a number of different instances where I like something and like, I want it all. <laughs> I just like, like it a lot. It's, it's a bit addictive with that. And so something to be aware of. I think another example, and frankly, another example that I think of and that I think is hard to separate is eating disorders never occur in isolation. They're highly comorbid with, you know, so many things. And certainly I am someone who struggled with anxiety. You know, I still struggle with anxiety. I take Zoloft, I meditate, I go in and out of therapy when I need to, et cetera. I had my first like depression episode last year. And I, I think those are the sort of things that in some ways, it it almost felt like, well, you know, recovered period, does this mean that I don't struggle with these other things? Even though I can be at a great place with my eating disorder, like I need to be cognizant of the fact that yes. I am someone yes. who's really prone to anxiety and depression and need to, you know, just be more attentive to the fact that I can live an incredibly recovered life in all the ways. But I think it's a I would describe it as like a humility for me in terms of just understanding the the yeah. you know, genetic factors that I tend to have and just being cognizant of that. Oh, I think that's true. I think it's really important. This is what I mean by parsing out this ge- uh, our genetic predispositions and what that means, because I don't deny that I still ha- am an anxious person more than other people I know, let's say, you know, maybe less than some people also. But, but knowing that, I still think you can be, I think people mixed it up and said, well, as long as you have that temperament, you can't be recovered. And I would say, I'm recovered from my eating disorder, but that doesn't mean I don't have to watch out and make sure like when COVID first happened and my anxiety kicked into, I was the one making sure washing every single thing that came into the house and making sure we had masks. And there was a good part about that. I felt like I'm keeping us all safe here in my house, but there's also a point where that can get where that starts controlling your life and you have to like tone it down. So (laughs) I do think that this thing about acknowledging our, our, our temperaments and learning to, like I realized after this whole temperament thing, you know, and I was a runner, I did sort of the same thing that you did. I started doing exercise, but I remember saying to myself, oh no, you're the type, you're like the, that horse sea biscuit. you'll run on a broken foot or something. So you should probably not sign up for a marathon mm-hmm. because you probably w- will overdo it. So knowing who you are and knowing where your vulnerabilities, that's what I would call them, are, you can help yourself, guide yourself, try to use your traits in the best way. I think that's definitely right. And this is where I said that I I think that for so many people who are saying fully recovered period versus in a strong and active recovery, you know, when we had mentors at Project Heal, the mentors at Equip here, you know, they they actually kind of meant the same thing. Like it was, you know, much closer together, which I thought was really interesting. And, and then I'd love you to just touch on some of the body image stuff. I think the 
body distortion, body dysmorphia is so common for so many of us in the early phases of recovery. How did that get better understanding our privileges? But also I know like I've been to your house and like, you can't find a mirror in the whole thing. (laughs) So like, what did you keep and really just think is, is a better way to live? I find that activism. Uh, So I don't get on the scale at doctor's offices. I just say, look, take my blood, take my urine, listen to my heart, do whatever, but a number is not going to tell you if I'm healthy. I find it activist now uh, in a way. You're right. I don't have mirrors at my house. I have I have one in my bathroom so I can put on my makeup because I still have my things. It's I very like small. That's very small. <laughs> yes. uh, and and so you know uh, I did a lot of work on body image stuff and a lot of work on body and soul. I I studied Buddhism a lot, looking at the nature of uh, happiness and the nature of suffering and what makes us suffer and how the, the body image is, is really, it's three separate parts. It's, it's what we perceive and then it's the attitude towards what we perceive. And then it's the behaviors that we think we need to do in order to correct that. So I wanted to work on all three, you know, like what's the perception I have of myself, but what's the attitude that I have towards that. And so I, you know, I think the thing about the privileges that we have, I have always dealt with that because when I'm treating somebody with binge eating disorder, who's in a much larger body, who's complaining and talking about being stigmatized, I get, and I've always got, I don't have that experience. I have not lived in that world. But interestingly enough, I wasn't spared the body image thing. I don't know how to explain that, but I really hated my body and was afraid of my body and was afraid of fat in many of the ways that you're saying, although we're different because I don't have to get that discrimination from the outside world. But I do think, and I do, uh, obviously it's a lot harder for people when we have this ideal types out there and when people are stigmatized because they don't meet the ideal type. And that's also when I think, I think the people who are doing the best with are people that turn that adversity into advocacy. And you and I know many of them who are fighting back, but I will stop short of saying they can't get better because, and I, I, they may want to take me up on this and uh, talk to me about it and that's fine. But I feel like I, I also was in a world looking at models, looking at, I mean, this happened to me at a time when Twiggy was the model that was put up for everyone, you know, and my stepmother was a fashion model and I still was affected. I was very much affected by it. And I believe that people can be recovered anyway, but we have to do things to turn off and and really we do we have to fight hard like i you won't see magazine you won't see popular magazines in my house either and when i ran my treatment centers i didn't allow them in you know i didn't allow them to have them because we need a break from the culture periodically and that's why you know i travel to places no phone no fax to give myself a, a culture break because I think we need periodically to come around to, wait a minute, what's real? 
am I a body that happens to have a soul or is it the other way around? Am I a soul on this planet who happens to have a body? Which is primary? Which am I paying more attention to? And that was a lot of work that I, that I did. Um, both in residential, I ran hospital before I even opened residential and I had an outpatient practice and all that. And I actually think that it's really healing to help people connect with themselves as a soul on this, on this journey. I think you have to. I mean, it's kind of one of the missing ingredients of recovery, especially in this world that we, you know, enter people into that is just so reinforcing of eating disorder thoughts and behaviors. And I think we all face it. I think it is harder for folks in larger bodies, certainly facing it kind of constantly every day. But we all enter this crap world and to really help people to get to a place where you are a soul more than you are a body. And then also equipping them and the folks around them to be kind of actively fighting diet culture and being kind of body activists, I think is is crucial and, and something that far too few treatment programs still incorporate into, into what they do. And, and I think with that, maybe good transition into, you know, Montanito and uh, the, the founding of that, like it was really revolutionary. You were utilizing a lot of things that were not seen in the traditional treatment landscape yoga, meditation, helping patients grocery shop, prepare meals, and perhaps most notably, and it's, again, kind of crazy to think that this was so not <laughs> accepted back then, but employing people who had recovered. Um, so so yeah. tell us about that. And, you know, what was it like introducing these strategies when it was not the norm? You know, thank you for always asking me the the questions that are so dear to my heart, you know? <laughs> I mean, and you've always... Uh, been very respectful to me for that. So I'm, I'm always very touched by it. <laughs> uh, I had run hospital programs. I was hired at a very young age. I had a huge private practice. I was well known in the area. So I was treating a lot of people and um, I was hired to run a hospital, put together a hospital eating disorder unit. And that ended up opening and running a second hospital unit. And both times, this is all in California, I'm looking at this thinking, we're taking people in and we are kind of forcing the issue with food. They're going down to the cafeteria and getting food served on a tray. They have no relationship to it. They don't go grocery shopping. They don't cook it. They don't portion it for themselves. And we're sending them home and they don't know how to do those things. They freak out and they, I saw this revolving door and I realized I want to do something different. I want to be in a home. I want to have them cooking before they leave to go back home. I want to take them grocery shopping. I want them participating. And also there is no exercise. And honestly, I think exercise can be incorporated in a healthy way during treatment. I've always thought that. You can take beautiful walks in nature. You can do yoga. You don't have to do pounding. You know, you don't have to do, you don't have to run 10 miles. But I thought, let's create this lovely lifestyle. But I also... I think you know the story of my dream. Do you know that? Do you remember this story? I don't know if you know, but 
Uh, that sounds familiar, but our viewer, our, our listeners certainly don't. So tell it. <laughs> well, about 10 years, a little bit over 10 years before I opened Montanito, I had a dream. And the dream was I was in this house and I was surrounded by nature and I was with six girls and we were having dinner and I was treating them for eating disorders. And then we were going to go for a walk after dinner and I woke up. Okay. Fast forward. I told my husband about the dream. Wow. I had this really weird dream that I had this house and I was treating people. So fast forward 10 years later and my girlfriend was buying this house in Malibu Canyon um, and she asked me to come over and take a look at it. I, I drove up the driveway and I had this weird deja vu feeling like, oh, I've been here before. Still didn't think about the dream. Walk, got all the way up to the driveway, walked up the stairs and into the house. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I, I know where the kitchen is. I know where the living room is. I know where the bedrooms are. What is happening and all of a sudden, I realized it was my dream. Same, same dining room wow. table, same outdoor backyard. It was the weirdest thing because I don't know how that works. It's some quantum physics woo-woo thing. But <laughs> how can you have a dream about something 10 years before it happened and walk into this place? And it was the house of, without a doubt. I could describe, and I did describe to her, the master bedroom's going to be over there. The fireplace is going to be back behind, you know, and she, my friend said, you can have this house <laughs> because it felt to me like I'm supposed to have a treatment center here. So aside from me getting to the point where I was running hospital programs and I was thinking this isn't right, I also ran into this house that had been in a dream and I knew I am supposed to open residential treatment here. And we brought in meditation and we brought in yoga, as you know, but we did all the other things, you know, all the standard treatment. And it just, it was before I had to get licensed as a, as an old age home, because there was no licensing, <laughs> there was no licensing for me. But the reality is I knew this was going to help people. Not everybody needed to be in a hospital white gown, you know, they needed treatment, but they they needed it to be much more holistic. And it worked. And as you know, residential is now ubiquitous around the country. Um, I was going to ask, can you just talk to our listeners a little bit about how controversial it was you employing recovered therapists, the pushback that you got? Oh, yeah. Well, it all started when I stood up at a conference and said I'm recovered and I had brought several people who, and I had been a therapist for 15 years. So I brought people who had been recovered for many years. Um, and I realized that in my work, one of the things of being recovered and talking to them about it was that it offered so much hope and inspiration. And not only that, I really felt like I could challenge them more on their BS when they said, oh, I'm never going to be able to handle gaining weight. I go, that's a bunch of BS. Cause I thought the same thing, you know, or there were so many things that when people, people who I was meeting had never met anybody who was recovered. And I thought, how weird is that? Because like, if you were a cancer doctor and you had never seen anybody who had recovered. So I realized that it had been an asset in my work. So when I opened the treatment centers, 
people knew that I was recovered and they sought me out. People around the country knew because I talked about it. You know, I always talked about it, even though people told me that I shouldn't talk about it, that wouldn't I prefer to be a, known as a good therapist rather than a recovered anorexic. I've told you this story and I just, I kind of walked away with my tail between my legs and then I thought, why can't I be both? Yeah. <laughs> so when people came to interview, it wasn't like I only hired people if they were recovered and some of the best therapists I had, like Anna Kowalski, she didn't ever have an eating disorder. But I realized if I if if these people are therapists and they have training as a therapist and they've recovered, there is a skill set to use here. I needed to train them how to use it in the right way because you can't treat people like you can't think people are going to get better the same way you did, for example. You know, you can't just start talking about your laxative abuse if maybe they never use laxatives. There are guidelines and boundaries for people who are recovered. But I think the hope and the empathy and the inspiration is incredibly meaningful and important in this field. And to this day, I would say for anybody who's ill, they should at least be exposed to people who are recovered somewhere, somehow. Hard to agree, as you know. How has the treatment and recovery landscape changed since you first started on you know, your own recovery journey? And, and what do you think are the next most revolutionary approaches to treatment? I think, oh my gosh, it's changed so much. And what's interesting is all this residential treatment and all that. And I see the scale swinging back to what's happening with coaching now and what's happening with Equip and how we're, we're going into people's homes and trying to help them, which is a little bit about taking the best of FBT and the best of residential and the best of coaching and putting it together in packages where people don't have to end up in these places because the places themselves have, I mean, the landscape has just changed. Let's just say it's changed and I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that. But what has changed in terms of what we're looking at and where we're going? I think a lot is going to be done with mindfulness type practices that help change the brain, help the, the amygdala response, which you and I have a hyper amygdala, <laughs> it's very active. That's the anxious part, you know. I think that instead of being seen as woo-woo, we're going to see how much that we can change the brain and help sort of neutralize what mitigate some of these traits that we're talking about through mindfulness practice. I think in some of the hardcore, really entrenched patients or clients, whatever you want to how, whatever term you want to use, but I think that the psychedelic assisted therapy is going to help with the default mode and change people who are in such an entrenched mindset and they can't see out of it. And there's a lot of correlation there between like meditation, mindfulness practices and what happens in psychedelics. And you can read about that and you can read about people who have done both. And they said psychedelics is sort of a fast shortcut way but what it might do is if someone has some exposure to it, then their mindfulness practice gets better and they can get there on their own and they don't have to go through psychedelics all the time. So I think those two things are happening along with this idea of the kinds of services that we're offering now so people don't have to leave their homes and leave their families. I couldn't agree more. And I think the tie for both of those, maybe the underlying theme is 
listening to people with lived experience. Um, that is, you know, what brought about these new approaches because our existing approaches weren't working for so many people and weren't reaching so many people. And so we have a long way to go, but it's it's exciting to look at kind of what's ahead in the future. And Carolyn, I have a couple more quick questions before we wrap up. These are rapid fire. So whatever the first thing <laughs> oh, no. come to mind. Um can you please finish the following statement with your first thought? Connection is? Critical. Body images? Um, incredibly complex. And it doesn't have to have the negative connotation it has today. It can be how we become embodied people. And, and if we, if we, if we start making body image be, oh, it's, it's that I'm an embodied human being, I get to use this body in all these ways, then I think that will be, that will be a game changer. Diet culture is. It's destructive. It is a term that has come to represent all the things that have gone wrong about maybe some well-meaning people and some not so well-meaning companies. So well-meaning in terms of health, not so well-meaning in terms of profit. We have to explore both, but we also have to know how to navigate around things that might take just not our not not may not be eradicated in our lifetime so we have to learn how to navigate around and through them recovery is doable worth it life-changing how can all the listeners stay in touch with you i do have an instagram uh thing so i think you can just look me up by my name uh but, but yeah, the Carolyn Carson Institute, you can look me up that way. And I have a website. Yeah, so those are a couple of different ways. Well, I could talk to you for many, many more hours, but we are going to wrap today. Thank you so much for your time and for all the incredible work that you've done in the eating disorder field that benefits so many people, uh, including including me. You've made revolutionary changes and continue to do amazing work and have really laid the groundwork for so many recovery warriors who come after you. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Carolyn. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Equip to Recover. Remember, recovery is not only possible, it is worth it. Find out more about Equip and how you can access treatment that works over at equip.health.